All right, well, I'll open us up in a brief word of prayer this morning as we get started, and uh, hopefully people will kind of trickle in as we get going. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for uh, the gift that we have that we call the sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Lord, they are um, difficult subjects, and there's a lot of diversity and opinion throughout your kingdom about exactly uh, what these sacraments are and what they do and who they should be applied to and all of that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help to give us clarity of thought and humility as we deal with this subject. Um, And we pray, Lord, that uh, the clarity of thought in our mind would also produce uh, clarity of trust in you and in the promises that are proclaimed uh, in these sacraments. And so we pray for um, our minds to be well prepared to think today, and we pray for our hearts to receive your word and uh, that everything that would be said would be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, we are going to look at a couple passages today as we continue our series in the sacraments. So if you will, go ahead and flip open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. Uh, Before we talk about Galatians 3, though, and as you're turning there, I just want to note for you that we are this Sunday um, continuing to look at the doctrine of baptism. And we are on our very last Sunday of looking at various biblical texts that relate to baptism. Right? So we've been uh, sort of going all over the Bible for over the last several weeks, looking at various portions of the word as it relates to baptism. And uh, we've just been noting all kinds of different things. Uh, baptism is washing, baptism in the Old Testament, circumcision, the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, um, uh, baptismal judgment, all of these kinds of things we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And uh, the purpose of that, as I mentioned when we started, was to sort of get a broad overview of various themes in Scripture that relate to baptism. And um, once we, after we finish today, looking at our last major theme, starting next week, we're going to start putting all of the pieces together in a very orderly, systematic way. And so starting next week, that's really when you want to, uh, if you're interested in this, you know, bring a notebook, bring some paper, a pen, whatever you want to use, and take some notes because that's when we're going to take all this material and sort of articulate it very clearly and simply. It'd be a great thing, actually, once you you know, listen to all of the, the sessions and, and we kind of get some notes together to sort of keep that tucked away in your Bible for next time you're talking with your Baptist friend and they say, hey, why do you crazy Presbyterians baptize babies? You know, or that kind of thing. You can have some, some answers ready for that. So I encourage you to bring some, some paper and notes next time when we go start going through baptism theologically. Uh, of course, we'll use some scripture too. Uh, we'll be looking at all kinds of scripture. But the purpose of it is just to put everything together clearly, concisely, and systematically. So I hope that will be really helpful for everyone. Uh, but today, like I said, we're going to finish our biblical theological look at baptism. So we're looking at our final major theme And our theme for today is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or what I'm going to call today spirit baptism, just because it's less of a mouthful. Okay, So we're looking at spirit baptism today, and we're doing that in Galatians chapter 3. If you haven't already turned there, that's the text that we're going to be looking at. But before we get into the text, I just want to set the stage for the discussion by a little bit of um, introductory remarks. And that is, uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, the relationship between the signs of the Old Covenant, like circumcision, 
um, you know, the Passover, the sacrificial system, those sorts of things, the signs of the Old Covenant, and the signs of the New Covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I want to talk about the relationship between those two things because uh, throughout this series so far, you know, I've been stressing the unity of those things, how circumcision relates to baptism. Uh, when we get to the Lord's Supper part of the series, we'll look at how the Passover relates to the Lord's Supper and so on. We're looking at the relationship between those things, how they're unified. And one of the things I've been stressing throughout this series is that, say, circumcision and baptism are fundamentally filling the same role in the church of both the Old and New Testaments. And the reason why I'm doing this is because we actually have a statement in our Westminster Confession that uh, buttresses this, that says the same thing. So I just want you to know I'm not making this up. This is very rooted in Reformed theology throughout the centuries. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27, paragraph 5, says this. The sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited, were for substance the same with those of the new. All right. Now you'll notice what the divines are saying there in the confession. They refer to the Old Testament sacraments. Normally when we think about sacraments, we're only thinking New Testament. But scripturally, the divines saw that, you know what? Because there's so much parallel between baptism and the Lord's Supper and circumcision and the Passover and all of those things in the Old Testament, we can see them as fundamentally the same thing. There really are Old Testament sacraments. And just, by the way, the word sacrament itself uh, is a Latin word that uh, is not actually used of baptism or the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. It's, not, it's more of a theological word, kind of like the word trinity. Now, you're not going to find the word trinity in Scripture, but... Uh, we definitely find the doctrine of the Trinity in the Scripture. And so we have a theological word that we use to describe it. The word sacrament is kind of the same thing. It's never specifically used in the Greek to apply to baptism or the Lord's Supper. It's more of a theological word that we use to describe baptism and the Lord's Supper. Okay, So we can use that term to describe Old Testament sacraments too, because the Old Testament sacraments are never described with that word either. Right, so we can use that theological terminology. And that's what the Westminster divines here are doing in our confession. They're seeing the parallels between Old Testament signs and New Testament signs, and they're applying the term sacrament to both to describe them. Okay? Now, I've been stressing that throughout this series, the unity of the Old and New Testament sacraments, how they're functionally the same thing. But I just want to clarify something here. They are, the Old Testament signs and the New Testament signs, they are fundamentally the same thing, but they are not precisely identical at every point. Okay? There is, throughout the Bible, as you know, God's revelation unfolds and as his word becomes more clear and as Jesus comes and so on, there is a kind of development so that the New Testament signs are stronger than the Old Testament signs. So circumcision and baptism were both, right? They are both uh, signs, covenant signs, of entrance into the visible church, okay? Circumcision and baptism both do that. But baptism does it in a stronger way. It presents the promises of God in a stronger way. And 
The way that uh, the confession sort of describes this, and I think this is really helpful, is found in chapter 7. And it says this. Okay, so note this. Westminster Confession, chapter 7, paragraph 6. Here's what it says. Under the gospel, that is, under the New Testament or the New Covenant, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual, spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. Okay, so that's kind of wordy statement, but let me just summarize it for you. Basically, what they're saying is that under the New Testament, right, the ordinances or the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they present the promises of God in the gospel with more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy than the Old Testament signs do. And the reason for that is actually, if you think about it, um, you know, pretty simple. The, the sacraments of the Old Testament, right, circumcision, Passover, they pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah. Right? They pointed forward to Jesus coming, saving his people from their sins, cutting off uh, sin from his people, that sort of thing. And they did that, though, in a, a rather vague way. They weren't as specific. For example, the Old Testament people of God, they didn't know, you know Jesus' name. They knew a Messiah was coming, but they didn't know his name would be Jesus. They didn't know that he'd be Jesus of Nazareth, specifically that person. Uh, they didn't know about all the miracles Jesus was going to do. They didn't know a lot of the specifics. They knew the general things, but it wasn't with all fullness. Whereas now with Christ having come, the New Testament covenant signs are going to present the work of Christ and the gospel and the promises of God through that in a much more full way because we have a much greater understanding of what the covenant signs are signifying, right? Circumcision signified the coming of the Messiah through the line of Abraham. Baptism symbolizes what that descendant actually did for us in the washing away of our sins on the cross, right? It's more clear. And that's why the New Testament signs are more powerful means of grace than the old. There's a development here as the word of God becomes greater and clearer and more full. So the sacraments are going to have a more powerful effect uh, when they're administered. Okay? So that's what the divines are getting at here in our confession. So just to sum up all of this is what I've said so far. The sacraments of the Old Testament and the sacraments of the New Testament are the same fundamental thing. Right? They're the same thing. But the New Testament are greater. There's a, a further development. There's stronger, greater means of grace. Okay? Do you see the distinction there? I'm saying the same thing, but there's a progression here. Okay? That's what historic Reformed theology understands. And that's why we have strong statements about the sacraments in the New Testament, like what we find in Galatians 3. All right, now, just as we continue to, to get into Galatians 3 here in just a second, I'm really have a lot of prefatory information here. Before we get into Galatians 3, I want to talk a little bit about um, the baptism of the Spirit itself. Okay? Because that's an important concept in Scripture that relates to this development of the sacraments. Um, you'll remember that uh, um, the sacraments strengthen the faith 
of believers in the promises of God. Right? That's a very simple, basic definition. The sacraments strengthen the faith of believers in the promises of God. And one of the promises of God that is explicitly tied to the coming of Christ very clearly is spirit baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is one of the promises of God. And uh, we see the first mention of this in the New Testament in Luke chapter 3. And you don't need to turn there, but let me just read for you Luke 3, verses 16 and 17. And this is the account of John the Baptist as he's baptizing at the Jordan River. And um, the text says this, um, Luke chapter 3, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there you can see the, the idea of baptismal judgment at work. There's, a, there's baptism linked with fire and how that's going to come and destroy the wicked. But that's not what I want to focus on here. I want to focus on what John says. He says that this Jesus, this Messiah figure, this Lamb of God is going to come. And he is not just going to baptize you with water like what I'm doing. But he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a whole system of theology out there, which I'm sure you're familiar with, at least the basics of, and that's the Pentecostal theology, the charismatic theology that teaches that you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like a Christianity 2.0, where you have people coming to faith in Christ, and then they're, they're saved, they're technically Christians, but then you have this second-level Christianity that's even greater, and you need to seek the second level of Christianity by seeking the Holy Spirit. You have Jesus, but now you need to try to get the Holy Spirit. And once you have the Spirit, then you'll manifest that the Spirit is in you by speaking in tongues and prophesying and doing all this kind of business. It's a Christianity, uh, you know, Christianity elite kind of a thing. Um, I'm not going to deal with Pentecostal theology today. Um, what I want to do is just focus on the positive here of what the baptism of the Spirit is. That's not what it is. The baptism of the Spirit is not a Christianity elite or the second version or the expanse of what you already have. No, the baptism of the Spirit is something else. One of the most obvious references to the baptism of the Spirit that we normally think of is from Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Right? Jesus says in Acts 1, when he's talking to his disciples right before he ascends into heaven, he says, look, you, our guys, are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus is referring back to John, what John said, his prophecy about how that's going to happen, the outpouring of the Spirit. Um, Paul, in Romans chapter 8, and this is how we know, by the way, that the baptism of the Spirit is universal for things that happen to all Christians. The baptism of the Spirit is not something for some Christians. It is for all Christians. And we know that because Paul, in Romans 8, says that all who have the Holy Spirit are true believers. Literally what he says is, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you don't belong to Christ. Right? So every single Christian has received the Holy Spirit. Every single Christian has received this outpouring of the Spirit of God. Now, what is it that this outpouring of the Spirit of God does? What is this baptism of the Spirit? What does it do? 
Um, Paul talks about the baptism of the Spirit in Titus chapter 3. And he calls it the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Peter, in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, quotes uh, the prophecy from uh, the minor prophet Joel, where Joel says that when God pours out the Holy Spirit, it's going to result in tons of people turning to God. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the prophecy of Joel as a result of the outpouring of the Spirit. Isaiah talks about the outpouring of the Spirit manifesting the spiritual gifts um, and the fruit of the Spirit, which is actually where Paul gets his fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Paul didn't just come up with the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of that. Paul, that's not original to Paul. That's all from Isaiah. So within this outpouring of the Spirit, you have this idea of salvation, of regeneration, of being renewed, of a new creation. The old man has passed away. The new man has come. And so basically then what Reformed theology has concluded about the baptism of the Spirit is it's not a second-level Christianity. Rather, the baptism of the Spirit is regeneration. The baptism of the Spirit is when God sends his Holy Spirit into the heart of a dead sinner and makes him alive, renews him, brings him, makes him a new creation so that he, it results in him embracing Christ in faith and turning to him and calling out to him and being saved. Okay? That's the baptism of the Spirit. It is regeneration. It is God working through his Spirit to bring someone unto faith and repentance. All right? Now notice that in, in Scripture, then, it's interesting that it refers to this work of the Spirit as a baptism. That it's a baptism. One of the things that I think is um, tricky about interpreting Scripture, and you guys probably are familiar with this, is that the biblical authors don't always use terms and words in the, with the same systematic theological precision that we use today. Right? So, for example... I'm sure you're familiar with the debate uh, between Paul and James, or the supposed debate, where Paul, when he uses the term justification, right, Paul has in mind how we are justified before God right, through faith in Christ when he uses it. James, on the other hand, if you read the epistle of James, he talks about the fact that we are not justified by faith alone, but rather we are justified by works. Well, this has caused all kinds of trouble for New Testament scholars when they're trying to like, and pastors when they're trying to understand what's going on. They're like, wait a second. Paul says we're justified by faith and not by works. James says we're justified by faith and works. What are, you know, it sounds like there's a contradiction in Scripture. But the issue is, after careful study, you figure out, oh, wait, Paul and James have different definitions. They're using justification in different ways. Paul has it in mind with relation to God and God declaring us righteous in his sight by the work of Christ. James has in mind being justified before men in the sense that our faith is validated by producing fruit of good works. Okay? So they're using justification in different ways. Paul does this also with the term salvation. In Philippians, he says, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. But then in another place, he says, you can't earn your salvation by good works, say Romans 3. Well, what do we do there? Is Paul contradicting himself? No, he's using the term salvation in different ways. 
Right? In Romans, when he's talking about the fact that we are saved by faith and not by works, he's talking about justification, which is a part of salvation. But then you go over to Philippians, when he says, work out your own salvation, he's not saying that you are justified by your working out or by working hard. Rather, when he says salvation in Philippians, he's talking about sanctification, which is also a part of salvation, just like justification is. So when he says, work out your own salvation, Paul says, you know, your sanctification is you working, right? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, but sanctification is a process of where we are progressively becoming more and more like Christ through working out our sanctification, okay? So all of this to say, don't get bogged down in the details. All I'm trying to say is that Biblical authors do not always use terms in exactly the same way. Sometimes they have different definitions in mind. James has one definition, Paul has another. It's not contradictory. They're just using language that way. That's how we use language too. Sometimes words have different meanings for different contexts. So that's, that's really important to understand when we come to this subject of baptism because the word baptism in Scripture has multiple meanings. And sometimes when we see biblical authors talking about Baptism. They might be talking about water baptism, as in the sacrament of baptism, or they might just be talking about spirit baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit, namely regeneration. Sometimes also they're just talking about regular washings, like, you know, Luke uses the word baptism quite a bit to refer to people just washing bowls or washing cups or something. They baptize the cup. Well, he's not saying they performed the sacrament of baptism on a cup, right? He's just saying they washed it. So you can see there's different meanings for the word baptism in Greek. It doesn't always have the specific technical definition that we give it when we think about the sacrament of baptism, right? You'll get that. So we have to, as we interpret biblical text, we have to look at the text to see. The word baptism shows up. What's, What's Paul talking about? What is Peter talking about? Is he talking about water baptism? Is he talking about spirit baptism? Is he talking about both? I mean, which one is it? And we know that spirit baptism and water baptism are two different things because the disciples of Jesus were water baptized, and then Jesus says, you're going to receive spirit baptism in a few days in Acts chapter 1. So we know that they're, they're distinct things. The question is, which one is being used in which epistle? And so... Now, with all of that introductory information, now let's go to Galatians 3. Galatians chapter 3, I want to look at verses 23 through 29, okay? And this won't take long, but I'm just using this text as an illustration to help us think through some of these issues. So let me read uh, Galatians 3, 23 through 29. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Then listen, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, 
heirs according to the promise. Now, I just read more of that text just so that we kind of got the context of what Paul's talking about here. But the verse I want to focus on is verse 27. You see what he says? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The way you interpret this verse and other verses that are similar to it determines whether you are a Presbyterian or whether you are a Lutheran or whether you're a Roman Catholic or whether you're a Baptist. Because here's the issue. When Paul refers to being baptized into Christ Jesus, what does he have in mind here? Is he talking about water baptism? Is he talking about spirit baptism? Is he talking about both? And you see, that's the question here. Because he's attributing this idea that baptism means that you are put into Christ. The baptism is actually doing this thing where you are being put into Christ, where you're being saved. Okay? Now, is Paul saying water baptism accomplishes this? Water baptism puts you into Christ. No, well, we would say no, right? right we would say no as Presbyterians because we don't think water baptism does that. We do think, however, another kind of baptism does that. Spirit baptism. Because spirit baptism is regeneration, right? Spirit baptism is being renewed. The old man passes away, the new man comes, the spirit works this renewal in and works faith in the heart so that the person responds with faith and is therefore justified and placed into Christ, right? So for us, when we come to this text, we see that this is not talking about water baptism specifically. This is talking about spirit baptism. And spirit baptism is what produces faith. Now, do we just say this because we have to, because that's what our theology requires and we have no good reason in the text itself to conclude this? No, of course not. Read Galatians. What is Paul's message in Galatians? He's saying ceremonies like Old Testament covenant sign circumcision are not going to save you. You can't rely on ceremonies. Paul's whole point is to say, you can't do ritual things and then expect salvation to come from that. No. Salvation comes through what? It comes through faith in Christ. This is part of why I read the context here. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Look at all the context here. Paul's talking about justification by faith. It just makes perfect sense then that he's going to talk about spirit baptism because spirit baptism is what produces faith. For as many of you as were baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ through spirit baptism, through regeneration, as many of you who went through that, so you are put into Christ. You see what he's saying there? He's talking about spirit baptism here, not water baptism. Now, Water baptism is related to spirit baptism. They're not completely divorced because water baptism is the sign and seal of spirit baptism. You'll notice the word baptism, the parallel there, how they're connected by the word. Water baptism, spirit baptism. It's the same thing as in the Old Testament where you have physical circumcision and circumcision of the heart. The Old Testament authors take the covenant sign, and they use the language of the covenant sign to talk about the spiritual reality that is signified by the covenant sign. So, 
circumcision of the heart in the Old Testament, right, is the cutting away of sin and the turning toward God in faith. Now, that's the same thing. That's a similar thing, at least, to spirit baptism in the New Testament. Right? So there, the, the biblical authors take language from the covenant sign and use it to express the spiritual realities that are signified in the covenant sign. Physical circumcision, circumcision of the heart. Water baptism, spirit baptism. And it's in this way, I think, that we see just this amazing unity in the scriptures. As we see, God is working the same way here. Now again, water baptism is a stronger sign of the covenant than circumcision because the word of God is more clear. And when you connect that clear word of God to the sacrament, now you have this powerful means of grace to work the promises of God more deeply into us. And that, I think, is pretty amazing. All right, so that, uh, that basically concludes what I wanted to talk about today. We've got one minute before the end. Any questions that you guys have about uh, this subject of spirit baptism and water baptism and the relationship between the two? All right, well, I uh, just want to remind you again then as we finish up here. We're done now with our biblical theological part of this series. We're done looking at just various themes throughout Scripture that relate to baptism. Next week, we're going to start the theological section, and we're going to put all of these pieces together that we've been doing over the last 11 weeks. We're going to put all this stuff together in, I think it's going to be four weeks left on baptism, and we'll hammer away at theology in very clear, concise ways that I hope will be really helpful for everybody. So uh, I know it's been really helpful for me to do the study and to, to put the stuff together. So I hope it'll be helpful for, for all of you as well. All right, we're out of time then. Let us uh, pray as we finish up here. Oh God, we, uh, we thank you so much for the sacraments, God. We, um, we recognize that uh, they're a difficult subject because it requires us to know so much of your word and to, to try to put all the pieces together. And that's not easy. Um, but we, we pray, Lord, that you'd give us clarity of thought as we continue to study them. And, uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless this time um, to our hearts and to our minds. We pray also, Lord, that you would prepare us now to worship you this morning, uh, to sing to you, to confess your word together, and also to hear your word. Uh, we pray that you'd accomplish what you want to do through it this morning. And we pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.